had a big head, rounded ears, six feet in the body maybe, with a very, very long tail, very muscular build. As it was walking, it was, it was still looking at me, and that's when I really panicked. It looked at me and thought, oh, oh, there's a human there, I'm not scared. You say, well, I've seen this big cat, and some people just flatly refuse. They think that Britain's such a sweet little island, we shouldn't have predators that size. I heard this growl behind me. Nothing like a dog growl. And just like anything else in life, you're sat on your own there. I don't care who you are, how brave you are. Something like that will put the shivers up your spine. As she was walking before the cub came out, she flicked this tail. She literally flicked it in the air. And I simply could not believe what I was seeing. It was the most extraordinary feeling. It threw its head back, he said, and it made this sort of round. But when you actually realise that there are big cats living in Britain, it changes everything. Welcome to Big Cat Conversations. We speak directly to people who've encountered one of Britain's big cats. We also discuss the bigger picture. Why are unofficial big cats being seen, and could these cats even be naturalising without us knowing? If you've had a big cat encounter in Britain and would like to discuss it, email me at rick at bigcatconversations.com. You can find other episodes on the website bigcatconversations.com. I'm Rick Minter, and thanks for joining me. Welcome to episode nine of Big Cat Conversations. Today we're going to be mainly talking about a type of evidence that we get from skeletal remains, the bones of the suspected prey of big cats. And we're going to be in the lab at the Royal Agricultural University for the second half of the episode. And the first half of the episode, I've come to the Dorset Heathlands to visit Jonathan McGowan, who has pursued the subject since he was 15. He had a sighting totally unsuspecting of a puma in a quarry in Dorset and that got his interest going. We're not going to talk about that sighting today with Jonathan. We're going to talk about another couple of different ones he's had. He's made his own luck and had several different sightings through his career in looking at this subject and we're going to be talking about the collection of the bones from suspected prey remains of big cats and how those get to the lab at the Royal Agricultural University. So both parts of the process will be covered in these interviews. So Jonathan, thanks very much for coming on to the show and we're going to talk if we may first of all about a couple of your sightings the first one you had a remarkable case of being out photographing spiders I think a certain type of spider and in the background something else cropped up can you tell us all about that one please yeah sure I was on a well-known moor on Purbeck and I was there to photograph spiders yes special type of raft spider and I happened to be there on this particular day and I had photographed the spiders and I was still photographing the spiders and they were in a bog and I was walking through Melinia, the purple moor grass that's quite high and I was on a little track, a deer path going through the, the thick vegetation on the marsh and I was hanging around because I was waiting for spiders to come out of the vegetation so I could photograph them and I was moving very slowly, perhaps a couple of metres every 
every minute or two because that's how the spiders were. They were dotted around and I was trying to get each individual as they were sunbathing actually on the gorse bushes. And first of all, I wasn't aware of what was going on because it was subtle. But what I noticed, every time I moved a few metres along this track amongst the gorse, there was also a movement ahead of me that was almost mirror imaging my movements. And at first, I really didn't think anything of it. And then I realised that there must have been an animal in front of me that was keeping its distance. And every time I moved, it moved and stayed the same distance away from me. So after it happened about three times, I thought, that's definitely an animal. And my first thought was, there's a fox that's hanging around watching me. And at first, I thought maybe it was one of the tame foxes that's fed by a person that regularly visits a lay-by and gives chicken to them. So I thought it was one of those. So when I looked down the path, all I could see was grass twitching. And I thought, that's really strange. And it wasn't until two or three times later that I saw this twitching in the grass. I actually thought, well, I'm going to check this animal out. So I looked straight down the track to where the animal was and waited and my gaze was in this particular spot until I saw the animal move and then I saw fur then I saw ears then I saw a tail swish and it sort of flicked over its back and back down again I thought oh my goodness me and at that moment I realized what it was I realized it's a cat and I realised it was a puma, and I realised that it had intent. There was a reason why it was hanging around just a few metres in front of me, and that directly put me back to the second time that I saw a puma, and that was by a den which had three cubs in it, and the mother was circling around me, slowly walking, flicking her tail with her ears back in exactly the same way. And I thought, maybe this has got something to do with the same kind of thing. And I thought, it must be, because any puma wouldn't hang around a few metres, it'll be gone and hidden so I thought maybe she's got cubs so I hung around for a while the puma did not move it stayed its ground a few meters in front of me almost as if it was trying to get me to follow her so I thought I will do that so I did and at one point she was walking about five meters in front of me and I was behind her and every now and again she would stop and look back at me and then walk back along the path so I thought she's doing the same thing she's trying to lure me away and there was only one reason for that it wouldn't have been food it would have been cubs eventually she just disappeared out of view because the grass got longer so I thought well I'm not gonna put her or cubs in danger or make her feel threatened so I thought I'm gonna pack up and come back first thing in the morning there's definitely a puma here she probably has cubs so five o'clock in the morning I must get down here and check it out so that's what I did so crack of dawn the next day I was out went onto the heathland I had a huge long camera lens, a 600mm lens camera and a Pentax. And I thought, maybe I will get her. So I waited nearby on a little hilly clump where there was pine trees. And I sat down on a big, low, fallen branch of the pine tree. And I waited. And the dawn came. The mists rose. There was not a single sighting of anything apart from a herd of seeker deer that were sat down about 300 yards away at the end of a moor. And I was watching those because I thought if there's any cat around, they would know and they would show sign. And it wasn't until an hour later that I realised that one of the deer was sat away from the herd. And I thought, well, why is that hind sat nearer me? 
And to be honest, I just thought that's all it was. I thought it was a seeker hind that just happened to be away from the herd. And it wasn't until an animal ran out from a gorse bush to my left that I realised that this animal wasn't another deer. Because what happened was this animal, which was a puma, and it was a puma cub, dashed out of the bush really fast and ran towards the animal that was lying down in the heather. The animal that was lying down in the heather immediately leapt upright from its lying down position in one go it must have been six or seven feet high off of the ground and at the same time as the animal leapt into the air the other animal leapt underneath it straight underneath it and then they both met and then they both ran together back to where the puma that was running in the first place had come from which was a dense gorse thicket and it was all in a matter of just three seconds it was so fast but it was enough for me to see what was happening and then relate that to typical cat play or kitten play I should say as one would see kittens at home playing it was exactly the same thing and it was so fast and furious and that was all I saw nothing else and absolutely no chance of photographing it in that three seconds even though you had the right camera equipment with you yeah my camera was there actually pointing at them but when these things happen you're so engrossed in the moment you actually forget that you've got your recording equipment there but even if I had tried to it would have been so quick because they were right next to me my lens was focused 300 yards away on the deer at the end of the moor so there's no way I could have ever pressed that shutter and got those animals doing what they were doing Okay, but what we have got is a splendid illustration. I I know you're a very good artist, and we're going to put a couple of the illustrations that relate to the sightings you're talking about on the website for this episode. So if people want to click onto the website and look under episode 9, they can see these illustrations. So that was a puma, and again, you've had two or three puma sightings over the years, and you've also seen some black ones, and you're as sure as you can be that they are mainly the ones you've seen leopards, I gather. So could we hear about one of the black cat sightings and your justification for why you are pretty confident it was a leopard? I'll say the second sighting I had, or what I believed to be a leopard, was actually quite it was quite odd because it actually happened in the, in the field where I saw my first puma that was stalking a badger in 1984. Although this sighting of what I believed to be a leopard was 10 years later than that. And I had gone out with a few friends to, to pick potatoes. And we were just outside Blanford in North Dorset. And we entered this potato field, the field where I saw my first puma stalking a badger. No idea whatsoever there'd be cats here at that time. I didn't even mention it until after the sighting. And we were in our small car. There was four of us in the car. And we trundled down this track to the potato fields. And the driver said, oh, let's just park here. There's no potatoes. They've been harvested. So we hang around for a while and decide what to do. So I said, yes, OK. So we parked alongside a shallow ditch right by the edge of the ditch. And as we did so, this animal suddenly rose up out of the ditch and confronted us and everyone looked and I can remember one of the girls said God what on earth is that and everyone looked in the direction she was looking and, and realised that it was right here right by the car a big black animal had suddenly loomed out of a ditch in front of us and I looked and I thought crikey and I could see it so clear because it was less than a metre away it was right by the edge of the car and what had happened was this animal had obviously been asleep had been awoken by the car engine and vibration and thought what on earth is that I must investigate so what I saw was this 
big black cat suddenly sit upright in the ditch. And as it looked, it looked straight into my eyes. And I looked straight at it and I could see pea green eyes. Although at first the eyes weren't open because the animal was obviously asleep and it was bright sunshine. And I think it was squinting just like a person would if you were woken up suddenly in bright light. And then it opened its eyes and I realised and I could see its tiny little dot pupils that were round. They weren't elliptical like a domestic cat. And what I saw was a really thick muscled face with big jaw and big fat muscles around the head and the small teddy bear like ears what I was looking at was a leopard without doubt no other cat but a leopard it was so full-on and muscular and that's what I saw as a jet black leopard and as soon as everyone was looking at it we were gobsmacked nobody said a thing and for about nine or ten seconds the leopard just sat there froze didn't move a muscle looking at us then suddenly it dropped down on all fours on its belly and it crept along the ditch and out of sight and everyone just looked at each other in disbelief thinking wow was that real what we just saw and one of the girls said what was it and i just said oh maybe it's a black badger or something yet I knew exactly what it was but everyone was so stunned and there was silence for about an hour and the driver decided to drive off in a bit of a state he was obviously shaking because it was so obvious what we had seen and to me it was definitely a leopard it couldn't have been any other animal or any other cat it was 100% leopard and I would say it was a female it looked like a female leopard as well What scale was it, do you think? I'd say it was bigger than a a Labrador dog, the biggest Labrador dog, a very large collie size. But its head was very large in proportion to its body, but also quite slim. And I was, was that close, I could see it was a female leopard, not a male leopard. And the usual question, did you get a good view of the tail? I didn't see the tail at all, actually. No, it was because it was low down it in the ditch full of stinging nettles, so I didn't actually see the tail until it crept away. Then I saw the base of the tail. Okay, yeah. It's always better if people see the length of the tail, as you know. Yeah. Um, Mm. And what about any kind of texture on the fur or length of the fur or shine of the fur? Anything? The fur was really, really short, very glossy and shiny. Any markings? Did you Could you see any markings? There was no markings whatsoever, even though it was in bright sunlight and the sunlight was on the animal. That was making it so clear and visible to all of us that were in the car. But I saw no rosettes, just jet black that was so shiny. I think the shininess took over everything else. Yeah. Even if there were markings, you wouldn't have seen it in the bright sunlight. It was like reflecting silver, basically. Mm-hmm. Did you see the whiskers? Yes, yeah, very thick whiskers. And most of them were black, not white, which I thought was quite strange. But they were very, very long whiskers and very Mm. apparent and obvious, yeah. Great. Well, I know we've got a super illustration of that one that we'll put on the website as well, so that's great. I know we could talk more about your sightings. I know we could talk more about the different types of field signs and field investigations that you do, but we want to focus on the bones that you find, the skeletal remains of what we suspect are prey, and then the analysis that happens beyond you collecting them. So tell us about how you find bones in the wild in Dorset. Well, okay. As you know, I've got a huge collection of bones, mainly from large mammals such as deer, 
and 90% of them are actually seeker deer because what I do is I tend to know where the animals go, where the animals stash their prey, where the animals drag their prey and eat it, where they feel safe. So there's often a build-up of a variety of different individual animals, although usually the same species in those places. And I may go every month or two, whenever I'm able to, to have a look at the new array of bones that will be perhaps under the group of oak trees where I know the cats have taken their bones up the trees and then they blow out due to storms and winds then I will go and find them and my last one I actually found remains of seven different animals the bones had fallen from the oak trees included wild boar calf sheep fox badger and roe deer and all of these bones were in a circle underneath the tree and one really doesn't need to first of all look at the bones to know what's the cause of those but that's a secondary thing which has all the evidence so I will pick up the pelvises the pelvises of the animal especially deer are usually the most likely bone to sustain trauma because it's a large bone and most of the best flesh adheres to the pelvis so you've got the rump so that's often the first place the animals get tucking into and as they do they hit the end of the pelvis where there's usually some kind of carnassial tooth shearing along the edges i rarely don't find these kinds of evidence on the pelvis then of course the femurs that come off the pelvis are often sheared and one can see the trauma made by those jaws and the shape of the carnassial teeth as they've sheared through it the other type of location you find bones in is rhododendron bushes yeah. and thick scrub where a cat would shelter with its prey and stash it away. How do you go about finding those? It's a needle in a haystack, surely, on the big extensive heathland. It is, but because I've had so many decades of knowledge of where the animals actually go, I can also judge a typical area where a leopard or a puma might actually like to feed. It could be in an area away from footpaths it might be near a main road it could be in a loud area but if it's an area where people do not go or dogs do not go then the animal will feel safe to eat and over time one can see that build up of bones appearing that might suggest every month or two that animal might bring that animal to that point to eat it so that's the easiest point for me to find my remains of kills rather than willy-nilly going around looking for a deer in a field or a hedgerow or something like that so once once I've got those areas which I know the local leopard or puma goes to, then I'll systematically go to those areas to pick up the evidence, basically. Mm. Presumably you find deer bones that you think are not related to a big cat as well. In actual fact, I rarely find deer bones that are not connected because I only go to the areas where I know I'm going to get the field evidence anyway. So when I do come across bones that are usually of deer, they are usually related to cat instances. And so most of those will have the typical tooth trauma. A lot of the time, the animals scavenge anyway. And if they do find dead deer in the area, they're going to eat it anyway. So most of bones I do find are from those areas where I would be looking anyway. Because often dogs and foxes move those bones around the area. They might go for a walk, pick up a bone and carry it for 100 yards before dropping it. Or their owner saying, oh, drop that. And then they do. And then I might come along and find it. And I think, oh, the dog's picked up one of the bones that's come from the Gorse Island, for example where the cat regularly stashes its prey. So then I track it back, I can relate it back, and I will find the other parts, the same animal in the same area. 
How suitable do you think Heathland and the Heathland scrub and Heathland moor habitat is for animals like leopards and pumas? The Heathland habitat is special for many reasons, mainly because it does replicate the most often lived in habitats around the world where pumas and leopards do live. They love scrub, whether it's South America for a puma or Southeast Asia for a leopard or the African bush. And the main reasons are, I think, is because you've got dense understory and that means ideal ambush areas. On most heathland, you've got ditches and mires, big scrubby gorse, low gorse, high heather, low heather. And you've got all those areas where the deer will come out to graze amidst those areas. And it has never flat the ground has always got fissures in it there's always big clumps where a leopard could hide and ambush a deer that's coming out to a pond to drink for example so you've got that really thick ground vegetation so that's one reason why the leopards more than pumas tend to feed and hunt on most heathlands or maybe live most of their entire life on the heathland another reason is the warmth because heathlands are always three or four degrees warmer than any other surrounding habitat type mainly because of the sand and the peat that retains heat when i'm there with a thermometer it's always four or five degrees warmer on my heathland than it is in open say pastures where cattle graze for example and the animals need that warmth especially in winter time thirdly it's ideal terrain for them to scent mark and communicate to each other because along the sandy tracks you've got the ideal media for a cat to scrape in the sand make a mound deposit its urine or feces or scent in that matrix and then move on and i find far more field evidence on heathlands than any other place so you've got a variety of reasons why the heathland is so good and of course at night time there's nobody on heathlands you've just got the deer and foxes badgers and and other animals so it's an ideal hunting place full stop with lots of water generally as well so you've got all those habitual requirements what a leopard or puma needs Mm. and the dog walkers are largely gone at night dog walkers in some areas must be a bit of a hassle for them but they can avoid them in their concentrated areas aren't they largely yeah there's never dog walkers on the heathlands around here in actual fact most of the heathlands you can go on in the daytime and you'll be lucky to see a dog walker on a lot of the heaths other than within a few hundred meters of some of the concentrated roadside car yeah, parks yeah, that's, that's right yeah, yeah yeah do you think the prey base on a something like a heathland is largely the array of deer and including seeker deer in dorset or do you think they get small reptiles and small mammals as well I've analysed lots of faeces of leopards and pumas. I rarely find reptile remains. In actual fact, 90% of all my scats that I find from leopards and pumas, most of it is concentrated around the deer. It's the most obvious animal that I find. And then other birds secondary to that, maybe other mammals such as badgers and foxes. But in Dorset, we have had huge herds of deer. There is a lowering of the deer herds now, which does have some effect on what the cats eat but in the past the deer herds have been so numerous that the leopards and puma have concentrated on them and have not needed to concentrate on any other food because there's such a high turnover of deer every year there's so many calves born and they sustain them as well as the adults and i know you've been mentioning about the content of the scat that you find and you're finding the typically large segmented scat which smells different from a fox scat looks 
different for fox scat and I know that together we've done some DNA testing and we've largely found that the results have come back with the content of the scat so row deer content or whatever so it is a frustrating business getting what is genuinely known as primary or one type of primary evidence so we're actually now moving to a lesser status of primary evidence tooth pit analysis and you must find it heartening that there is a university that's keen to take samples from you and investigate those in the lab. I think it's amazing and it's well overdue time that academia was taking up the subject seriously because of course it adds kudos to the subject and with science that's what everybody seems to need these days to prove that it's real and so we are getting that and I think it's marvellous yes. What's frustrating is that only the triangle pattern of the three cusps of that carnassial tooth on the leopard and puma-sized cats is really what counts. I mean, I know that we, you, you are presenting to the Royal Agricultural University many more types of tooth pits, but the process of tooth pit analysis can only really validate tooth marks where there's the three, the triangle of, of three cusps, which is frustrating, but there we go. We must be rigorous. So far, 15 in the lab have been validated, and that will be written up soon in a peer-reviewed paper, as we're about to hear from Dr Andrew Hemmings and the our second guest in the programme. You have just presented to me three lots of samples from Sussex and Dorset and you think there's some more triangular patterns on some of those bones so we might be heading for some more. Yes I've got three carrier bags comprising of seven seeker deer and one sheep and I think among the whole lot there might be five or six triangles. Indeed this pelvis here that I have of a sheep actually well a very large lamb that was eaten in one of my study areas. We have typical carnassial teeth marks, but of course we have triangles. There's a bit of a triangle there. Mm. And the shearing, the classic shearing. The classical shearing of a carnassial teeth matches exactly the, in this case, a large male leopard I have matched it to being very big. Also the canine tooth pits are very large. Okay, Jonathan, we're going to sign off on tooth pit now and just talk a bit more generally. What do you reckon on big cats living in the wild in Britain? I actually believe that big cats living in Britain is a good thing. It can only be a beneficial thing, regardless of what other baggage it may bring. Because in any working ecosystem, one needs apex predators. And for millions of years, large cats, wolves, bears have been the apex predator. And what I see in the UK is that in the past, we didn't have so many of these apex predators doing that job. Now we do. I can certainly see the benefits all round in the ecosystem The pyramid is so important and with the apex predators taking the unhealthy deer, the diseased deer, the roadkill deer, they are actually creating healthy stock that in turn create healthy grazing, that in turn create beneficial homes for birds and insects and reptiles that all depend on those deer grazing and doing what they do. So in my opinion, it's a shame that we eradicated our original apex predators such as the lynx, bear and wolf. And now we have pumas, leopards and lynx back in the UK. Of course, the lynx was originally here anyway. And if you go even further back, so were leopards. It's only been a few thousand years since leopards lived in the UK, really. So to me, they're doing what they should do. And I think it's a really good thing. There's far more benefits than otherwise of these animals being here. 
What about, let's try and put the counter-argument and say, oh, well, there are some hassles. Sometimes pets will be predated, ground-nesting birds. What would you say to that? Would you say those are petty hassles compared to the bigger benefits? Very petty hassles. That's what they do. Birds are predated on by all kinds of animals. In actual fact, the leopard, for example, the puma, they concentrate mainly on the larger animals rather than the smaller ones. So to me, any small bird's nest that might be taken, small mammals, reptiles, is actually nothing compared with the main job they're doing. Okay. Jonathan, I think we'd better sign off now and we will be interviewing again through these episodes on the podcast because there's plenty more to discuss with you. But I think we've had a a really good insight into bone collecting and predator-prey relationships happening in southern England. So for now, thank you very much for joining us on Big Cat Conversations. Thank you, Rick. Words of the week this episode are citizen science and citizen science is all about people contributing to scientific work scientific recording wildlife recording things like the big butterfly count which happens in the summer each year that teaches people who are contributing to that work things like the importance of baseline information the importance of trend information it's a great way of families working together to hone their observation skills their recording skills their use of references and keys another way is through things like bioblitz surveys where a place like a park or a churchyard is surveyed in a day or over a weekend with ecologists and specialists but the public can join in to learn about what's there and help do that rapid ecological survey. For big cats of course it's going to be different we're not going to have formal surveys like that I don't think for a long time but meanwhile anything to assemble evidence is going to be helpful so things like the collection of bones which may have tooth marks on them which we're learning about in this episode is a type of citizen science and big cat research will only advance through local people helping out other organizations universities or whatever in future collecting and analyzing information which may point to how big cats are present and what their behavior is and what their characteristics are so those are our words of the week citizen science For our second half of the episode, we're in the lab at the Royal Agricultural University. I'm hosted by Dr Andrew Hemmings, who's an animal scientist and head of equine here at Sirencester at the RAU, as it's called. And it's terrific that there's actually a study going on on big cats and particularly looking at the impacts on bones, something called tooth pit analysis that's being conducted here. Andrew's overseeing that and most years has at least one student helping him analyse these impacts on the bones to Today we're going to learn all about that. So Andrew, thank you for hosting us. And can we start by just your quick overview on the range of samples of bones that you have in the collection here that the students and yourself take a look at? Certainly can, Rick, and thanks for inviting me on to Big Cut Conversations. It's a pleasure to be here. And I've been involved with this project now for around five years. And in this laboratory, we have bone specimens from around 100 different carcasses, Some of the bones are from the same carcass. These bones have been collected from Dorset, from the Dorset Heathlands. 
and from various locations around the Gloucestershire area. And they come from a a range of different species, although most represented in this particular sample group are sheep and primarily certain species of deer. Okay, thank you. And the main types of bones are the pelvic girdle and the mandibles, is that right? That's correct. Yeah, we've got quite a few samples from, as Rick says, from the the pelvic girdle, from the lower mandible, from the scapula, which is the shoulder blade. And when I come on to discuss the various types of toothpick later in this conversation, I can reveal that it's the flat bones generally which suit us very well for the toothpick analysis as they reveal a certain type of toothpick which allows us to be quite specific about the predator which has taken down the prey. Okay, thanks for that, Andrew. And we tend to use the term here in the study, toothpick, but there are more types of tooth impacts on the bones. Could you just very quickly summarise the main types of marks? Absolutely. So when the predator takes down the prey and feeds on the flesh, it defleshes the carcass, then finally makes its way down to the skeletal material and obviously contained within the skeleton are vital nutrients in the bone marrow. And so whatever predator is concerned with a particular kill will begin to gnaw the bones. And as the teeth come into contact with the bones, they might make traditional conical shaped holes as a result of the front canine teeth that we're very familiar with when we look at cats, the the large conical pointy teeth that we call the, the canine teeth. But then as the animal begins to gnaw the bones, then it will utilise the rear teeth, the molars and the premolars. And a little bit like our teeth, the molars and the premolars have a variety of conical shaped projections or cusps. And those cusps make a very specific type of indent, which is generally shallower, but it can tell us quite a bit more about the type of predator that's taken down that prey. So we're looking overall for the canine imprints made by the front teeth, but also the slightly shallower multiple prints associated with the molars and the premolars, particularly an interdigitation between the last upper premolar and the first lower molar that we refer to as the carnassial teeth. Okay, can you explain the dental putty where the canine impacts go? Absolutely. So in order to accurately measure the tooth bit, we almost need a 3D representation or mould of that tooth pit. What we use is a dental putty and it's an epoxy putty. It's a two element putty which we mix, we force into the tooth pit, allow that putty to set for around five minutes and then we can remove that putty once it's solidified. And at that point, it enables me or my colleagues to come in with a very accurate set of digital calipers and come up with measurements in millimetres relating to the length and the breadth of the tooth pit. Okay, and as we know, the problem is, although we might feel that the farmer or the informant who gave us that sample is possibly correct in their view that they've given it to us because they think it's big cat related, that part of the process cannot conclusively rule out a dog of a similar size to a medium large cat like a puma or a black leopard. So can you explain why the carnassial triangle is better, much more foolproof measure that we're looking for? 
absolutely. And so carnassial teeth are used for kind of shearing and defleshing and gnawing the carcass. And the upper carnassial has three very specific and well-defined projections. The parastyle, the protocone, and the paracone. The distance between the parastyle and the protocone is really quite key to enabling us to work out what has taken down that prey. And Rick refers to the fact that there are quite a few potentially quite large, big predators. So domestic dogs, for example, a German shepherd has really big canine teeth that can produce a big indent in a carcass. And actually, our research has revealed that the toothpits caused by canine teeth are really quite unreliable as far as identification of the predator is concerned. But the carnassial teeth provide us with much more precision. And I mentioned two projections from the carnassial teeth, the parastyle and the protocone. The spacing between the parastyle and the protocone is far less in a large dog such as the German Shepherd or even the wolf. And it would be around three millimetres but the same spacing in a medium to large size cat, such as a mountain lion, that measurement is far greater. It's actually just over double the size, so about 6.5 millimetres. And so the spacing between the parastyle and the protocone is really crucial to enlightening us with the nature of the predator that's taken down a specific prey. And that's really about the evolution of the dentition between the cat and the dog, isn't it? They just have evolved slightly different carnassials, and that's what you're trying to assess on these toothpits. And you use yeah. digital calipers for that distance We uh, use gauging. digital calipers for that, and we also do some macro microscopy just to further investigate the toothpits. But to be honest, I get really excited when we find these carnassial imprints, because it's quite rare to actually see them on bone. And this is why we really like flat bones, such as the lower mandible, the pelvic girdle, and as I say, the, the shoulder bone. These are nice flat bones, which provide a greater chance of those three cusps that I've spoken of in the upper carnassials. There's a far greater chance of them actually making the trio of indentations that we require to assess whether we're looking at a carnassial imprint or not that we're really interested in. This really is sort of citizen science that you're linked to with the people who are bringing the samples to us, which is splendid. I mean, sometimes a farmer has a bone remain, a skull or a mandible or something, which is almost his trophy from when the big cat was on his land or their land. And uh, it's nice that some farmers are giving us those samples and feel it's being put into the bigger scientific study to give it some purpose. But sometimes the investigators in the field come across some skeletal remains and they'll quickly, and I do this as well, quickly check for any triangle patterns from toothpits but of course your students sometimes find things beyond what the field investigators have found so that's an extra job for the students that you're supervising which is splendid. One of the aspects of this study that I really like is the ability to involve the local community and they become my sample collectors and those might be farmers they might be one of the growing band of highly dedicated big cat citizen scientists 
And all of these will be sending me skeletal material for both myself and my students to analyse in the lab. So I think it's quite crucial that this science remains accessible to the local community. But more than anything, even though Rick has described it as citizen science, and it certainly is, my main mission with the Big Cat project is to make sure that analytical and experimental design rigour is fully adhered to. And we reject more samples than we accept when it comes to the carnassial spacings. We have to be quite sure from a scientific rigour standpoint. Sure. And of course, it's frustrating, as you know, and the people collecting the samples know, is that quite often you'll get two toothpits, which you think is part of a triangle, but that third one just didn't appear. So that's part of the frustration of this process. But also, of course, it's important to have controls. Now, I was in Colorado a couple of years ago, and I was lucky enough to find what seemed to be a triangle toothpit impact on an elk, a young elk pelvic girdle. Seemed absolutely bang on. On what we would want to look at here in the lab. I wasn't allowed to bring it back because they have a no-take policy in that part of Colorado and I wouldn't have had all the paperwork to get it through customs. But there we are, that was wonderful to see. So that would have been a control because it would have been potentially a puma in its native lands doing exactly what we're looking for here. So we have to rely on zoos, don't we? We certainly do and Exmoor Zoo have been incredibly generous in allowing us to have bone samples and these are actually bovine, these are cow bones which have been fed to separate enclosures of mountain lions and black leopards. This enables us to be 100% certain about the predator that has gnawed on that bone and we can be very sure that the toothpits we're seeing are from a very specific species and this is the first toothpit study of its type in any species that I'm aware of to utilize control bones in this manner and the recent student that's been working on this project a chap called Ian Weller has approached the work with accuracy precision incredible rigor and Ian has actually uncovered two carnassial imprints in these control bones which have been exceptionally useful to me because it's revealed that that crucial measurement is a little bit less than in some of the other reported literature. It's around the 6 millimeter mark rather than the 6.5 to 7 millimeter mark. But what would be really nice is to expand our collection of control bones. And as we go into the next academic year and recruit more students, for me, that's one of the next real steps in taking this project forward is to build up a collection of control bones, maybe from other species, which better resemble the fauna in the UK sheep, deer, for example. So I'm going to leave that with Rick to put us back in touch with Exmoor Zoo, who, as I say, have been really generous to this work. Perhaps we'll be knocking on the door of other zoos as well to get that variety of samples. Mm. But yeah. Now, Andrew, the fate of one sample is both tragic and funny. Can you tell us what happened to something that was potentially very interesting lying on your desk one day and... Oh, this is embarrassing. Rick didn't tell me about this one. He's yeah, he's tossed that one in there. But yeah, I had a, a sample sent to me, which was actually a, a sheep jawbone. And deer, I, wasn't it a deer? Oh, it might yeah, have it was been a deer. A deer. It yeah. was quite smelly, Rick, whatever it was. I looked at the sample in the lab and confirmed more or less that what I was looking at was a carnassial imprint. And in a, a state of mild excitement, I took the sample back up to my office in its jiffy bag. And sadly, that was around about the same time as the cleaner came to tidy my very untidy office. And it went in the bin. 
She thought it was a bit of residue from your lunch the day before. Presumably. Could easily have done. She's found much worse. Okay. I think that you had told me that you thought it was a triangle pattern from canines coincidentally looking like carnassials. So you were going to reject it to excuse yourself. Yeah, it's quite difficult sometimes to make the absolute call. And this was quite a fresh sample. And uh, in order to confirm yay or nay, carnassial or coincidental trio of canine imprints, I would have had to have dried it out and subjected it to some more analysis. So I think it's fair to say that there's a 95% chance that that sample would have been rejected. Yeah, still very funny, but you've learnt your lesson, I hope, Andrew. I certainly have. (laughs) I certainly have. By the way, I think that the informants of that do forgive you as well. I'm sure they'll be providing more in time. Finally, can we just talk about how you feel as a academic in a mainstream British university conducting work on big cats in the wild in Britain and how you find the students feel about it? Yeah, okay. Well, I'm a keen user of the countryside and I, and I love to go out fishing and running and, and walking with my dogs. And since the, the mid to late 80s, I've been seeing reports of big cats. So from a personal standpoint, I've never had a sighting myself, but I've always kept an ear to the, the media reports. From a university standpoint, the RAU is really happy to be hosting this project. As long as we can be designing the experiments with sufficient rigour to get this work published in peer-reviewed academic journals, and that's the next stage, and I'm very confident that our processes and our techniques are rigorous enough and our data is exciting enough for that now to go forward and be presented to the peer-reviewed literature. So it and an academic journal and I mean once I start writing up that paper which is is definitely in the pipeline very soon out of those hundred odd carcasses we've now got 15 carnassial imprints that we're confident about the only other published work in this field managed one carnassial so I think we've got a strong paper so 15 carnassials three of those fit the measurement parameters of a medium to large sized feral cat. So in terms of what we're we're finding here, and it is only one form of analysis which must be brought to bear in conjunction with other analytical techniques such as DNA analysis, camera trapping, that kind of thing. But what I'm seeing in the lab in front of me today is certainly stacking up in favour of the big cat. Thank you, Andrew. Just a bit of clarification. When you said feral cat, you meant medium-large cat the size of puma leopard. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's exactly what I meant. Fine. Okay. thank you. How do the students find the subject, Andrew? Are most of the students comfortable with this going on? Yeah, most of them are comfortable. We get a range of attitudes and feelings communicated back to me. The majority of the the viewpoints from our students is if these animals are indeed naturalising themselves in the UK, it's, it's exciting. They should be left alone to do their thing. There's obviously then another sector of, of people who say, well, perhaps get a bit more gung-ho about shooting and trapping and that kind of thing. But generally, it has to be said that the students are excited about the project. And when you, you talk a little bit about the background as to how some of these animals potentially been released they completely take on board that that the feasibility and the the potential for these animals to be roaming the countryside 
Mm. And of course, amongst the students, there are plenty of people in the agricultural and land-based sectors. And amongst them and their families and their networks of contacts, they know people or know their parents or family or friends who've actually reckoned they've seen a big cat. So it's not such a culture shock to some of your network of students and stakeholders, is it? It's not. And at least four or maybe five members of staff at the Royal Agricultural University have approached me over the years to share with me their own quite reliable sightings. Yeah, I remember one of your colleagues last year at one of our work shops came up to me and he'd seen this wonderful sighting right in front of his car of a mountain lion puma hurdling the dry stone walls between here and Stroud and he said to me how come there's such a paucity of evidence and which is a good question but we're on the case. We certainly are on the case and as long as we have our dedicated group of sample collectors and dedicated followers and supporters of the project then we're going to get there. We're already in the position to write the paper and certainly as far as this project goes as a university we're we're certainly still on board and hope to support and expand the data set. Brilliant. I want to thank you very much, Andrew. Look forward to keeping in touch. And for now, thank you very much for coming on Big Cat Conversations. No problem, Rick. It's a pleasure. Okay, that's us done for episode nine. As ever, thanks so much for listening, everybody. Remember, you can go to the website, bigcatconversations.com, go to the refs and links page and scroll down. And for this episode, episode nine, you'll see a range of photos and illustrations to back up the contents of the show. For our next episode, it seems to be all happening in Australia, just like in Britain. It's remarkable to see the parallels, and we'll hear from Simon Townsend in Victoria, one of the most experienced researchers in Australia. So, hope to see you then. All the best for now.